Welcome to A Course in Miracles, Living the Love, Walking the Talk, with Rev. Jennifer Hadley, a beloved teacher of the Course, who has helped thousands learn how to express their beliefs from moment to moment in their everyday lives. Get ready to focus on your intent to be the love, be the peace, through practical application. Here is your host, Rev. Jennifer Hadley. Bonjour, bonjour. So happy to be with you on this beautiful, beautiful day. I am back in Maine, Deer Isle, Maine, where my family has a home and uh, where where many of us are gathered here, as we often do at the end of August, to enjoy each other, to cook a lot of good meals, and to have fun. Yesterday, we were watching the eclipse together, and... <laughs> And we had a really good time, and uh, I'm grateful to share all this this happy energy with you today. I have a guest for the very first time. It's going to be actually my very first conversation with Robert Perry. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, so we're going to learn about Robert Perry and what he's up to. He's been uh, a student of the course for decades, and I'm very excited to have him as a guest with us today. Uh, so we're going to do as we always do. We're going to begin with a prayer. So I invite everyone to take that breath. And as you all know, I like to place my hand on my heart and remind myself that I am wholeheartedly here for spirit to be truly helpful. So grateful to take this breath of God to open our hearts, to open our minds to the higher Holy Spirit self, leading us and guiding us through our conversation. It's a divine dialogue. We're joined together in the Holy Spirit, in the love. We are grateful to dedicate our conversation to being inspired, to being uplifted, to remembering the truth that sets us free. We are grateful and thankful to lay on the altar everything that doesn't serve us, every false belief, every judgment, every complaint, every thought of separation. We are grateful and thankful to open our hearts and minds to the unity of all life, So grateful to remember we are one. So grateful to remember that we are loved, that we are perfect, already perfect. So grateful, so grateful. We share the benefits with all beings because we're one with them. We share the benefits of our healing, nourishing, expansive conversation with everyone. In gratitude, we allow the healing to be. And so it is. Amen. 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 Yeah. So, Robert, what you may not know is that uh, I've been doing this show every week for six years, almost, be six years next month. And uh, we have a week, it's a weekly broadcast. So, we have over. 300 episodes, and uh, I've been a Course of Miracles student since 2006, and prior to that, I was uh, training to be a science of mind practitioner and minister, and so mm-hmm. I, once I completed all that nine years of training, I said, okay, great, now 
A Course in Miracles. And I just absolutely love A Course in Miracles. It's, uh, it's just, it's my salvation <laughs> in this world. I'm so grateful for it in so many ways. And my foundation of science of mind was perfect for me to, to bring in A Course in Miracles. And, and, uh, so we get a lot of people who listen to the show uh, who come from the, the unity background, which is the new thought background. And um, uh, so we have a lot of people who come in who are unfamiliar with The Course in Miracles, but like I was 11 years ago, interested and uh, eager to learn, eager to discover uh, greater understanding of the truth, the remembrance of the truth. And you have been doing uh, this work with A Course of Miracles for 30 years, so I'm excited to to learn from you and to uh, know more about your histi- history and your background. And, and you have um, just... Um, did you personally publish this new version of A Course in Miracles, or is it, would you say, it's Circle of Atonement? Yeah, the Circle of Atonement, which is the organization I, I founded and, and worked for, we published it. Right. And uh, so I'm, I'm sure that's a long time in the making. So I know, I know we really want to talk a lot about that, and... But first, I wonder, would you tell us how you came to A Course in Miracles? Sure, yeah. Let's see. What happened was uh, I, I grew up in uh, Protestant churches, Presbyterian, Lutheran. And when I hit my mid-teens, I, I got – I just realized I didn't know why I believed the things that I supposedly believed. And I uh, – <laughs> as many of us did, and I started to read around a lot in in all kinds of areas that, that so many spiritual seekers have read in, you know, whether it's parapsychology, um, mm-hmm. you know, world spirituality, mysticism, phenomenology of religion, all kinds of different things. And I became convinced through that reading that, that there really must be a spiritual reality. It seemed like whenever... Mm-hmm. Somebody had a glimpse of something beyond the physical. They seemed to glimpse a fairly similar landscape, and it was one that they didn't really tell me about in church. Mm-hmm. So I gravitated, I was very eclectic, I was into all kinds of teachings, but I gravitated fairly quickly towards the Edgar Casey readings. Mm. Uh, I, I, I related to the fact that this was channeled. I felt like there must be, you know, he had some kind of pipeline to a higher realm. Um, I like the focus on Jesus. That was kind of my roots, and I, I felt a continuing sense of connection with the figure of Jesus. Um, so my fiancé and I started an Edgar Casey study group, um, and, and we pulled in some close friends to, to join us in the group. And at one of the meetings of the local study group leaders, um, somebody said, I actually overheard somebody said, um, did you know that Psychology Today, the magazine, has done an article on the lady who wrote Jesus' Course of Miracles? And I had no idea what 
that person was talking about. I assumed some somebody had done a study of the order in which Jesus did the miracles in the Bible. You know, um, so I read the article because it was there at, at the at the meeting, um, and I thought this sounds like it's right up my alley. Um, I was in college then, and I was basically too too cheap to actually go out and buy the book. Um, <laughs> but uh, my fiancé and a bunch of my friends got together, and for my 21st birthday, they bought me A Course in Miracles. And that's how I first got the course and first got into it. Although I should say that it took me a bunch of years to decide it was my path. I, I was very eclectic. I was into the Casey readings and other things. I felt like my whole, my whole foundation was the truth. You know, it was kind of like light that was shining through all kinds of cracks in the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually it just became clear to me through a lot of different means that the course was my path. And I, I wasn't particularly happy about that. Um, but I felt like I hadn't chosen it. It chose me. Mm-hmm. And so um, once I decided that, you know, the course was it for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of us feel that way, that it, it, it's, <laughs> in a certain way, it's like meeting the love of your life. <laughs> you just know you have that deep connection and you'd like to know more. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't really feel that right off. Which we often don't when we meet the love of our lives, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, what happened was it just, I had issues with it and I had gripes. But over really about seven years, it kind of pulled me in further and further and further until I said that I was eclectic and followed all kinds of teachings. But in fact, I was just doing the course. And by this point also, um, I had... I had started teaching at Miracle Distribution Center in Southern California. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I taught classes there, I kind of convinced myself, you know, I, when you stand up and have to advocate for something and deal with people's issues and such, um, I think you not, you're, while you're trying to convince them, you're reinforcing whatever your own conviction is inside yourself. Mm-hmm. So that was a yeah. that was a big factor for me. Mhm, mhm. And so, how did Circle of Atonement come into being? Well, what happened was um, I eventually moved to Arizona. I'm from Southern California, but I moved to mm-hmm. Arizona in 1990, and uh, I I actually wanted a career not in the whole spiritual thing. I wanted a career as a philosopher and assumed I would probably end up in academia somewhere. Um, you know, I, I'm basically a thinker. And that's how I got into the spiritual thing. I didn't, I wasn't like looking for peace. I, I just became convinced by evidence that there was a spiritual reality. Um, so what happened was once I started teaching at Miracle Distribution Center, which was 1986, mm-hmm. um, Things just happened. You know, I, I wrote a little booklet for them. 
Um, and I started getting invitations to, to go and speak in different places. Uh, one of the early ones was in Canada. And it just became clear to me that my career as a philosopher that I've been planning on for a long time was not what I was supposed to do. And I finally, after a long time of resisting what I think was probably clearer than I thought, I realized, wait, this is my career. And mm -hmm. so once I moved to Arizona, um, my, my wife and I started uh, first just just a kind of a sole proprietorship, as they call it. It was just like my personal business for a couple of years. And then in, in 93, um, we incorporated as a nonprofit under the heading of Circle of Atonement. And so it just kind of happened incrementally. Uh, our vision was always that it would be, it would try to meet a full spectrum of needs that course students would have, both to understand the course, to practice the course, to extend the course to other people. Uh, and so I always envisioned it as, a, as not just my thing, um, you know, front for, for me and, and an outlet for, for my own contribution, but as a group endeavor. And so over the years, we've sort of here and there gathered in teachers really from all over. Um, and not a, not a ton. We've been actually training teachers for several years now, but our, our vision has always been that this would be very much of a group thing. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I love working in community. It's, I, I think it's so much easier and faster for us to awaken within a community rather than uh, the very tempting path of going out and living in a cave by yourself where there's nobody to irritate you but yourself. <laughs> yeah, it's easier. Uh -huh. It's a bit lonely, I'm sure. Well, I think it's easier in community uh, because you you get so much support. I mean, I it does does it appears easier to go live in a cave, but people who do it don't seem to be that thrilled about it a lot of the time. But uh, a course of miracles tells us so clearly, as as you well know, that uh, it's our brothers and sisters that are our salvation. So when we're in community together, we get to experience and practice, which is, of course, the only way that A Course in Miracles can really help us is if we apply it assiduously day after day. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I actually completely agree with what you're saying. I think that there's something about being in relationship and bringing these principles, you know, into active application in relationship, that is the, the fastest way to really grow up. I think we often think about spiritual development as being about maybe reaching higher states of consciousness, which I think it is. Mm -hmm. but I think it's also about just becoming a more whole, mature, healed, uh, loving human being. And I don't think we learn those things just through meditation, for instance. Uh, so mm -hmm. I've been, I've been, uh, oh, I've, I've lived with countless, not countless, but, you know, a couple dozen spiritual seekers over the years. I've lived in group houses a lot. 
um, where, you know, you're, you've got five, six people living in the house and you have to deal with all, all that comes out of that and, you know, sharing a kitchen and all that. And uh, it can be extremely challenging. It can be a bit of a, a mess, kind <laughs> of a nightmare. Mm-hmm. But there's something that comes out of it that basically pushes you along to be a more whole person than you were. Indeed. Indeed. It's, uh, you know, other people can be like sandpaper, helping us to smooth all those edges so that nothing can get caught on them. And uh, when, when we can be grateful and thankful for every button they push and bring to our attention, then we we're truly being masterful and and uh, it takes a great willingness to to live that way and uh, fortunately the more we do it the easier it usually gets so (laughs) thank god for that yeah Yeah. so I know we want to. Uh, we, we we're not going to take a break today. Uh, we're going to go straight through here, so we have some extra time, and there are so many things for us to to talk about. And one of the the biggest ones is that you have published this. Um, or do you call it a new version of A Course in Miracles? Well, our formal title for it, or, or subtitle, the title is A Course in Miracles, but the the subtitle is. Uh, complete and annotated edition. Um, and complete means that we've, we've included in one form or another all the dictation that Helen Schuckman took down from the author who says he's Jesus. Uh, and annotated refers to the fact that we have um, copious footnotes throughout the edition, which are really there to support the reader. There, you know, as you're reading the course, there generally are all kinds of questions that come up. You know, what does that sentence mean? Oh, isn't that a Bible reference? Um, you know, where did he refer to that earlier? And so where we felt that the reader had a need like that, we would put a footnote to try to meet the need. Mm. So we talk about it as the new edition, but formally it's the complete and annotated edition. So what's the difference between that and the Ur text? Well, probably to answer that, I probably should step back just to explain what we did and and a little bit of why. So that this will take me a a while, but it's it's important to understand (laughs) because otherwise it just, you won't get the concept. So, you know, what happened was, as you may know, uh, first the course was published in 1976 and back then, um, I didn't get involved until 81, but, you know, back in, say, the 80s, I, I know from personal experience, we didn't think of there being all kinds of extra things that Helen Schuckman took down that were not in the course. But beginning in 1991, when Ken Wapnick released Absence from Felicity, his story of, of Helen Schuckman and her scribing of the course, it became clear that there were other things she took down. There were actually about 7,000 words in Absence from, Absence from Felicity that Helen took down that were not in A Course in Miracles. And I was just riveted 
buy that extra material. I thought it was amazing. I wore out my copy of Absence from Felicity, um, you know, reading it and taking notes. And, and then what happened nine years later is that people got a hold of a couple of the earlier versions um, in the process of editing the course before the final edit. Okay, so early in the year 2000, uh, somebody released on the Internet what Helen had built and Bill had called the Healing Casey version. And mm -hmm. then uh, later that year, somebody released on the Internet what you just mentioned, the Urtext. Um, and both of these were earlier versions um, of the course. And both of them had substantially more material in them than in the familiar blue book that we all owned. And so what happened was I, I began to really study those earlier versions and compare them. Um, it was especially interesting to compare them, like compare across versions to look at a passage in the familiar FIP, Foundation for Inner Peace edition, the one we all had, and see what that passage looked like in the Healer and Casey, and see what that passage looked like in the Urtext, and I did a lot of that. And I came to the conclusion, well, I'll, let, me, let me back up. What I, what I you know, the, the story that you should know, and maybe you do know, is that there was this whole process that the course went through in between Helen taking down her notes and the familiar blue book being published. And right. the process, very briefly, was that she would take down her handwritten notes um, she'd hear the voice, and she'd write, you know, in a mixture of handwriting and shorthand symbols what she heard. Then she would dictate what she had written to her colleague Bill Thetford, and right. he would type it up. And his typescript is what they called the Urtext. Right. And Urtext means original text, but the original text was actually her handwritten notes. So the Urtext is already one version removed from the original notes. Okay, and then she took the text of the Urtext and retyped that and edited as she went. And then she and Bill took that retyping, which Ken Wapnick called the second draft. They took the second draft and edited that to produce what they called the Hugh Lynn version because they gave it, they gave a copy to Hugh Lynn Casey, who mm -hmm. was the son of Edgar Casey. Mm -hmm. And then Helen and Ken Wapnick, who came on the scene later, took the Hugh Lynn version and edited that to produce the first edition of the course that was, that was published. And what happened was, along the way, uh, editing was going on all along the way, most especially in the early chapters of the text, but also to some degree throughout the course. And so what happened was things were, you know, sentences were being changed in their wording, either a little bit or a lot, um, and chunks of material was being taken out. And so there is about 10,000 words in Helen's original shorthand notes that did not get dictated into the Urtext. And there's about, oh, I don't know, I think it's about 15,000 words. Or, or, no, I think it's about 23,000 words that were in the Urtext and did not make it into the Hugh Lynn version. 
And then there was an additional about 12,000 words that were in the Hewlin version that didn't make it into the Foundation for Inner Peace first edition, the one that was published. So overall, about 45,000 words dropped out along the way in between the original notes and the first edition of the course. And then in addition to that, there was also just a lot of changes of wording in, in, within sentences that stayed in. But the sentences, so, so that, for instance, um, in the first four chapters of the text, only about 21% of the sentences that are in the blue book retain their original wording. So, so the, those sentences come from Helen's notes originally, but along the way, some of the wording in four-fifths, four out of every five sentences, got changed. And Only in the first chapters, but it does give you a sense of how much took place. Yeah, go ahead. Right. And my understanding, though, is that the those changes were all directed by Jesus. The ones, all the that, ones that Helen made. Right. That is a great idea, and I'd love to believe that idea, but I just, I just don't find it believable anymore. Um, for all kinds of reasons. One is, I don't think that claim was ever made. Ken Wapnick's, the, he, you know, of course, he was there editing the final, you know, uh, version with her. His only claim was that she knew what changes to make, and occasionally, rarely, she would explicitly ask. Um, so she supposedly knew what changes to make. But if you look, if you actually set the versions next to each other and look across them, put them side by side, you know, it, the editing looks very human, very imperfect. There are lots of mistakes. There are tons of changes in meaning. There are sometimes explicit instructions for editing that got ignored, you know, instructions from the author. Um, there are just, it's just from, and I've, you know, had my nose in the editing for years and years now. It mm-hmm. just looks like a very fallible, imperfect, well-intentioned, good faith, human effort. Um, such that there's editing on top of editing. If it was guided, I don't know why it wouldn't have just been guided at all at once. Like, why change this sentence? and then change it again, and then change it again, or shorten this section, take out material, then shorten it again, then shorten it again. Uh, from what I can see, it looks like uh, it looks like Helen was just motivated by some very kind of understandable personal motives. If you look at the material that gets taken out, and again, it's mostly in the early parts of the text, but to some degree throughout, it consistently is material that refers to something concrete in the world. And there was no instruction to, to take out everything that, you know, is a concrete reference, you know, references to voting machines and to um, the Inquisition and to Gene Dixon, the astrologer, and to just, there are all kinds of references to specific things in the world. Um, Freud, Edgar Casey, reincarnation, karma, Shakespeare, um, Don Quixote, and 
once you get used to her editing patterns, and I think Helen was the main editor throughout. I don't think it was Ken Wapnick. He came on after most of the editing was done. She was the only one involved in all the different processes. If you get used to her editing patterns, even if you don't remember you know, how a certain section ended up looking in the FIP, if you come across the original version of it, you, you will know what she'll take out. You know, for instance, there's a, there's a passage in Chapter 12 in the text where he says something like the, the analysis of the ego's real motivation is the modern equivalent of the Inquisition. Great line. <laughs> right? when, you're, when you're trying to yeah. analyze someone's <laughs> real motivation, you know, where their ego is really coming from, basically that's like the Inquisition. Um, well, but the Inquisition was a thing that happened in history. And you, you know, if you know her editing enough, you'll know that any references to something like that, they're going to come out. And that one came out. Um, so I, from my standpoint, I just don't see any reason to think that it was all perfectly guided. I see every reason to think it was a well-intentioned, good faith, but fallible human effort. And so as I started looking across the versions, this was about 15 years ago, I just became convinced there was such, there was so much great clarifying material that came out. And there was um, so many passages that got kind of garbled in the editing so that I, I, I scratched my head over them for years. And finally, I read their original wording and I thought, oh, that's what it means. And there were passages where I had just tried and tried and tried to figure out what it meant, you know, without success, really. Um, so I just became convinced that the situation, it had to be rectified. Um, one of the things that really affected me personally was that in the original dictation, there were a lot of references to Helen and Bill's lives and to how they should be applying, or how they had applied, in some cases, the Course's teachings. And so, you know, as Course students, we're always wondering, well, how do I live this? How do I apply this? And here we have the author, you know, giving very clear commentary on how it should be applied or, or successfully was applied in Helen and Bill's lives. And that material, it... It changed my relationship with the Course. It gave me a much clearer idea of how the author wanted us to apply the material. It, you know, it removed all that guesswork. And so can I you, just thought, you know, can you, yeah, go ahead. Can, well, can you give us an example of that? Oh, yeah, there's tons of them. Yeah, um, great. So, for instance, uh, early in the dictation, in the equivalent of what's Chapter 1, um, he's still giving the miracle principles, which were originally um, much longer. They were they were interwoven throughout about twenty thousand words of you know the equivalent of chapter one, um, and then the editing took those principles, pulled them all together, and put them in their own section at the beginning of chapter one, and then chapter one itself was cut down from about twenty thousand words to about five thousand words. So anyway, the whole process of the miracle principles was dictated over a much longer, um, you know, series of pages. And so 
Did you want to ask something? Sorry. Well, I, I'm you. I was just uh, still waiting for you to say how did how did it yeah. you apply it to your life and yeah. Yeah, I'm getting there. Sorry, kind of long That's long okay. preamble. Yeah, um, no worries. So, in dictating one of the miracle principles, um, the principle was that oh, I think it's um, 24 now in our in our edition. Miracles are part of an interlocking chain of forgiveness. And so after dictating that principle, that miracles are part of an interlocking chain of forgiveness, he, the author, who I think really is Jesus, uh, said a great example of this um, is when, and he referenced a story from Helen's life that happened before she started to, you know, describing the course. Mm-hmm. And the story went like this. Uh, she had a, a, a deep love for an organization called the Shield Institute for Retarded Children. And she was involved in this organization, um, working with developmentally or, or intellectually disabled children was her specialty professionally. Um, and so she, she loved the organization and wanted to see it succeed. And a, a friend of hers, or at least a colleague, um, named Esther wrote a report about that organization, which she called the Shield, um, for short, that was meant to secure funding from the National Institutes of Health. And apparently, the report was very shoddily done, and which meant it jeopardized securing the funding. Mm-hmm. And so, what Helen did was she went and rewrote the report in Esther's name. So that it became, it went from a very bad report to a very good report. And it mm-hmm. did end up succeeding in getting the funding. Um, and what Jesus said was that, that by doing that, Helen had, had sort of reproduced that interlocking chain that he was talking about. Um, in which, well, first of all, she helped the organization and helped the children, thereby who the organization was there to help, um, but she also helped Esther because Esther, she had done this thing that would have very likely had negative consequences and Helen swooped in and saved Esther from that by redoing the report. And Jesus said that Esther also, I mean, Helen also had undone her own um, past acts of lovelessness, um, apparently in past lives is how it sounded. Um, by, by helping the children now, she undid times in the past when she had hated and hurt the children. Mm. And so, so this one thing she did, he said, did a miracle for everyone. And what's interesting mm-hmm. is he said she did it, she rewrote the report resentfully mm. because she felt that Esther had put her in a very unfair position. He mm-hmm. said if you'd known all the people it would have helped, you would have done it with great joy. But mm-hmm. he said, even though she did it with resentment, it was still a miracle because of all the people, Helen included, who were helped by what she did. Mm-hmm. And so we might look at that same instance and think all kinds of things as course students. Well, Helen came in and rewrote the report. Maybe she was putting too much, she was taking form too seriously. Maybe she was meddling where she wasn't supposed to be. Maybe she was being codependent. You know, she did it resentfully. Obviously, she's spreading hate in the world. 
We could have said all kinds of things about Helen rewriting that report, but Jesus himself called it a miracle about four or five times and, and listed it as an example of one of his miracle principles. So it tells us a lot about how he saw miracles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so how has that awareness really sh- changed your life? Well, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I've, I've been dealing with this material now for, you know, we, we took a lot of years to actually produce this edition. I can um, only imagine. Yeah, we had to um, transcribe all of her handwritten notes, which was not an easy thing. Her, her notes are sure. off of and then edit from scratch, trying to honor the editing instructions that, that Jesus himself gave to Helen and Bill, um, while trying to preserve as much material as possible. Um, so it was, a, it was a very long process. And I had the opportunity then to, to really have lots of contact with this early material. And it had a huge influence on both my understanding of the course and my practice of the course. Because what I realized is he was a lot more focused on what we do during the day. Yes, we're supposed to understand the Course's teachings, and yes, we're supposed to be practicing internally like the workbook teaches us, mm-hmm. but all of that is meant to provide a foundation whereby we are active miracle workers in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're asked for guidance frequently throughout the day about how to express love to others, Mm-hmm. and where we are really on top of our interactions, both our in- interior reactions to people and what we express to them behaviorally, because our, our role, according to this early material, is to express love to them and thereby have a healing effect on them. And that's mainly what he called miracles, expressions of love that heal others. And so I've, it's really pulled me into being much more focused. You know, I'm a very intellectual person. Um, I like spending time in my head. I, I, I like it there. Um, this has pulled me much more into realizing, okay, well, whatever you work, ever work you do internally, the point of it is how it shows up in your actual daily interactions. You know, are you a more loving person? Are you trying to connect with guidance to express love in the most helpful way? Or are you somewhere else while the people in front of you are in need? Right. And what do you think are some, what are some of the, um, or what is the most fundamental basic practice for us Moment to moment. Well, I'm a big fan of the workbook myself. And and the workbook tries really hard to teach us a discipline that we that we are carrying that we are basically enclosing every day in. Um, you know, where we start the day with the morning quiet time and we start the day with some, some course study, um, and then we're carrying a thought from the course, like the workbook gives us, of course, uh, you know, a new thought to practice each day. Um, we carry that into the day. We renew it on the hour. We repeat it during the hour. Um, we repeat it to dispel our upsets when we lose our peace. Um, so for me, 
you know, I pick a new thought each day. I'm not doing the workbook formally right now. I will be doing it again next year, actually. But right now, I, I pick a, a line based on my text reading, and then I just carry that practice, the practice of that line, into my day. So I try to, you know, spend time with them on the hour. I repeat it briefly throughout the hour. Um, I repeat it when I lose my peace, which happens in small ways all the time. Um, and, and, and so that's been a huge part of my life for a lot of years. But now I appreciate more fully that that is not just meant to deliver me peace. That's meant to give me a foundation on which I can go out and be a loving presence in my interactions. Hmm. So, what um, what is the the practice? Yes, the workbook. Um, yes, taking these thoughts from Jesus and contemplating them. But what would you say is the the one thing that is going to bring the biggest benefit for a Course in Miracles student to practice, like the specifically? Like a specific idea? Well, I, I wouldn't call it an idea. I would, I would call it more of a, 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 a spiritual practice. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer that the Course is – a whole path, and so I my my own orientation is there are all kinds of elements that are trying to work together, and if if the course is our path, and I don't think it is for everybody. I mean, you know, something everyone's got something. Um, yeah. But if the course is our path, my belief is we're supposed to try to get all the different elements of its mix to be, you know, to to sort of if we're going to bake the cake, we've got to have all the ingredients in the cake. And so I'm a big believer in, you know, daily study of the book, a uh, big believer in daily practice. And when the Course says practice, which it does a lot of times, like 200 sometimes, it's referring to the internal practice the workbook teaches us. Right. Um, so that's, when I hear the word practice, I mean, it's a very elastic word. You can mean all kinds of things by practice. Um, and many of them, you know, really good things that the Course doesn't quite mean by that word. But when I hear the word based on, you know, my familiarity with it in the course, I hear that internal discipline that the workbook is, is trying to teach us. And I'm also a big believer in the extension part of it, which I'm talking about under the heading of miracles and expressing love, you know, because the course says that as we give these things away to other people in the form of expressing love, we reinforce them ourselves. So I personally feel like the key is to try to get you know, all the ingredients of the cake in there. Got it. What would you say is the key ingredient, <laughs> if there was one? <laughs> well, the course, you know, the ingredient that it seems to emphasize the most is forgiveness, um, which it has, you know, its own unique teaching about. It's, it's, it's not... Forgiveness, as I'm sure you know, um, as we conventionally hear about in our culture. Uh, but I also think it's important to realize that 
that the forgiveness it wants us to practice, um, you know, it it partakes of those different elements I just mentioned. We to to really practice it, we have to understand what the concept is, and that comes through yeah. really to study the text. And then we also have to be practicing it internally, um, because our minds are you know we're not geared towards forgiveness. We're geared towards judgment and, and you know holding resentments and being angry and getting mm-hmm. people back. Um, and also forgiveness in the course partakes of that that aspect of extension to others because it's not just if you look at what the course means by the word forgiveness it's not just you know i'm releasing my i'm feeling different in myself it's also actively relieving guilt in my brother oh yeah you know, i'm letting i'm letting him in a sense you know feel off the hook so that he doesn't feel guilty anymore and so forgiveness is, is kind of a, it's one thing, but it partakes of the entirety of the course, really. Yes. Yeah, I, I um, my simple description of forgiveness is the practice of non-judgment. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... That's a great simple thing, but how is it that we that we can and even should refrain from judgment? And so for me, it's so it's so key for me to understand all the course's theory about that because then suddenly it makes sense of oh that's why, you know, it doesn't make sense to judge my brother. That's why it makes sense to forgive him instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, non-judgment is at the heart of it. Yeah, I just find that if I don't judge in the first place, there's no forgiveness is required. Yeah. Well, I, I love that line. It's easier. Course, <laughs> yeah. Well, and that, that's, of course, a big teaching in the Course, to overlook, to overlook yes. you know, what you would think of as sin from the start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're actually... Whoa, the time, I'm looking at the clock. We we do have a little more time here, but oh um, <laughs> I know, I know, it goes by so fast when you're having a good time. Um, so I know you would like to tell us some more about um, this new uh, uh, offering that you're bringing out, and you've got some special offers, and... Um, I also uh, I would like to ask you a question about, the, are there other versions that have Helen Shuckman's name on it? So you put Helen's name on this. I, I'm just, I'm curious about that. Um, Helen's name on the cover? Well, there is, let's see, I've got a perversion of the urtext here. I don't see Helen's name on the cover. Um, Helen's name is inside all the versions now. I mean, when I first got the course back in 81, Helen and Bill were anonymous in the preface. You couldn't even read their names. But, of course, they're in the FIP preface now. It's just that, mm-hmm. you know, neither one's on the cover of the book. But, yeah, we just wanted people to know in a very short space what the keynote of our edition was, and that's why we have on the cover based on the original handwritten notes of Helen Shuckman. So people know mm-hmm. we've gone back to her original notes and edited from there. Mm-hmm. Great. 
And so how long has this version been out? Uh, it was first released in January of this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how, how many years did you labor on this, Robert? Well, I think we were about eight years or so in high gear. I started working on it. Um, you know, we eventually had a team working on it. Um, you know, I was the main editor. My colleague, Greg Mackey, was the assistant editor. Uh, and then in addition to the two of us, we had about 40-some people doing different things to help because it was just such a huge task. Um, but I started by myself trying to produce early drafts of, of like chapter one and two back in, I guess, 2004. So, um, you know, between eight and 13 years, depending upon, you know, how you figure it. But it was a lot of time. What a labor of love. It just felt so important that it get done. And when we, when we were first, for years, I wasn't thinking this was going to be some, you know, defining project for, you know, my organization and myself. I just thought mm-hmm. it had to be done. And over right. time, it kind of sank in, wait, this is actually a big deal. Um, but it took years for that to sink in. We just started out thinking, someone's got to do this. <laughs> so about, real quickly, about um, that uh, offering you mentioned, um, we've gone through our first printing, we've got a second printing we've done, and we're doing kind of a more formal book launch than we did with, you know, in January. And what we're doing is um, offering for a certain time that if you if you buy the book um, and specifically buying it on Amazon.com, then you get certain bonus materials with it. And the bonus materials um, involve three approximately one-hour videos that cover the teaching of the course, that cover the program of the course, how the course leads us through internalizing its teaching. Um, and then covers, uh, the last one covers why we made this edition and how we did it. And there's some, so those are videos and there's some support materials for each video. Um, and so you can take advantage of this if you go to, and I'll give you the URL, but it's kind of long, sorry to say. Um, <laughs> it's, so I'll give it to you slowly. It's www.acim.circleofa short for Circle of Atonement, dot org, and then slash bonus. So ACIM dot Circle of A dot org, that's the website for this new edition. And you can find out all kinds of things about it there if you like, see some sample materials and such. And then slash bonus added on to that gets you to this bonus page where you can you know, buy the book and then pick up the bonus materials for free. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, and for those who um, didn't quite catch that, um, can they go to circleofa.org? They can go there and get, get to this page from there. Um, but this is, this is a different site, which starts with acim.circleofa.org. Got it. Um, so it's a slightly different site. But there are links from our main site to this site. Wonderful. And uh, also, you have a lot of resources at circleofa.org as well. 
Oh, we've got tons. Yeah, we have, I think, over a thousand articles and commentaries that we've written over, you know, about 25 years. Mm-hmm. And one thing you can know, too, Robert, is that we transcribe these radio shows, and people can go to uh, my website, livingacourseofmiracles.com, and go to the radio show page, and then they can download the transcript. So it won't be available immediately, but it, it'll probably be there in uh, a week or two weeks' time, so if people That's would great. like to, yeah, go back over what you said. we One of the things we do is we transcribe all these radio shows so that those who are hearing impaired have an opportunity to have the have access, full access to the material. Mm-hmm. Plus, we have people in uh, many, many, many countries around the world who listen to the radio shows, so uh, for them, sometimes it's English is their second language, so we also mm. provide the transcripts so that they can clearly um, listen and and gather all that's offered in the, the broadcast, so um, everybody can know that you'll, you'll be able to read again, if you like, what Robert has shared with us, and uh, gosh, I feel like we just scratched the surface here. Yeah, it went by rather quickly. It does, it does. And um, so I am going to start wrapping us up here, and I do have a few announcements to make. So um, uh, just bear with me here, Robert. Um, One of the things that uh, I wanted to let everyone know is uh, as we're coming to the close of August, we have uh, uh, next month we're going to be offering another Living A Course in Miracles class series. I haven't announced the theme yet, uh, but I'll be announcing that probably early September, and folks can go and register for that free series of classes. Uh, we've been doing those for, this will be the 13th one we've done. We've been doing them since early 19. 19- 19, uh, 2011. <laughs> and so, uh, these free series of classes are just a wonderful opportunity for us to focus in on A Course of Miracles and a particular theme or topic as I get guidance to do. And so we'll be sharing that um, in just a couple of weeks' time. Um, and uh, in October, there's uh, some events that are coming up. We have the Weekend of Freedom Retreat in North Carolina at the Art of Living Retreat Center, which is such a beautiful place in Boone, North Carolina, uh, up in the Blue Ridge Mountains. It'll be coming to fall foliage turning time. And there's a wonderful group of A Course in Miracles uh, folks who are gathering, including David Fishman, Regina Dawn Akers, John Mundy, myself and others. So we're going to have a spiritual hoot nanny that weekend. There's music. It's really going to be lovely. I love this facility. And that's why I'm doing two more events there in October. I'm going to be there for a few weeks. Uh, In the second weekend of October, I'm doing my Forgive and Be Free retreat. It's a long retreat weekend. We do a lot of deep work. If you'd like to uh, 
read about that at jenniferhadley.com on the events page. That's the second weekend in October. And uh, I even recently collected some testimonials from folks who took it last year. So you could see how they're feeling uh, nine, ten months later. Because uh, one of the things that uh, we sometimes experience is we go on weekend retreats and and um, it, it seems to go in one year and out the other. And I really make a big effort that people will have lasting healing work. Speaking of forgiveness, uh, we're going to be really doing deep, lasting forgiveness work. And, uh, you know, forgiveness work is something a lot of us uh, put to the back burner because it feels unpleasant. And what I love about the work we do in a group as we make it fun, there's a lot of laughter. Yes, there, there are often tears and, um, and sometimes it can feel intense, but I have found that when we can do it in a super loving group, small group setting, that it, it feels safe and intimate, uh, and, we, we can remember to laugh at last and get over it, forgive and be free. And then uh, that will take us right immediately into my spiritual counseling training intensive. So I've been training spiritual counselors for a few years now, and that's one of my guidances is to support people in having a career being truly helpful and uh, for those who are guided it's a wonderful opportunity to number one thing that we do in these events is to uh, to let go of the past and all the the sense of unworthiness. It's very difficult to be a good spiritual counselor, healer, life coach, even parent or grandparent, any kind of business. Very, very difficult to do it if you do not feel worthy. And of course, that's the, one of the main things in the course is our deep sense of unworthiness and guilt. Uh, same thing uh, often, you know, they work together, that guilt and unworthiness. So we, we spend quite a bit in the week-long intensive clearing out that sense of unworthiness. So that's why many people come just for their own personal healing. So as always, I say, if these events are right for you at this time, you will intuitively know that and uh, to trust that. And we have all manner of payment plans to help you with that. So I'm going to say a quick prayer here and close this out. So grateful. So thankful for Robert Perry and his precious life and his labors of love. So grateful and thankful that each one of us can turn to the Holy Spirit in each and every moment. So we partner up with the higher Holy Spirit self, leading us and guiding us throughout every moment so that we choose love, we choose non-judgment. No forgiveness is needed. We are grateful and thankful to open our hearts and minds to the truth and to share the benefits with all beings because we are one with them. In gratitude, we let it be, and so it is. Amen, amen, amen. God bless you, Robert. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. God bless you, everybody. Mwah. <laughs> 